Welcome back to the Curbsiders. The- well, hello, Matthew. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm a bit tired. I've I've moved to the East Coast, Stuart, so it's quite late here right now as we are recording this intro after a very long and informative conversation. Um, Paul, Paul, uh, we're sorry that your your connection dropped out halfway through this or less than halfway through this. I don't know when. How are you doing? I'm great. <laughs> Yeah, I could hear everything just fine, so I got a lot out of this. I just had, as per usual, not much to contribute. So it's not much has changed for me. So for me, this is a fantastic episode. Well, thanks, Paul. Okay. Well, we weren't all going to give our picks of the week, but I know Stuart had a very special pick of the week that he wanted to talk about. Oh, it was amazing. Yes. So uh, the facility that I work in is trying to save money. And so when I went to go use the restroom, I noticed that they installed some some type of security measure on the toilet paper. You can only take two squares of single-ply toilet paper. So my pick of the week is two squares of single-ply toilet paper. <laughs> and this is... No more. You work at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. Is that correct? <laughs> it, it is definitely Cashlack. <laughs> well, so it's not a misnomer. No, not this time. Definitely lacking cash. <laughs> Okay. I, just, I have absolutely nothing. I, I the wheels are spinning, and I got nothing for you. I, uh, I, I mean, I could, I could, uh, I could recommend plenty of things, but I'll save it. Stewart's pick was so good that I think the audience <laughs> that's that's all they need. Uh, I, I did want to introduce this episode. Uh, first, I wanted to thank Dr. Emilio Fantanez, whose last name I most surely mispronounced because that's my thing. But uh, Emilio, thank you so much for setting this up. Emilio works for. He is a cardiologist, and he is part of the Society for Cardiovascular Computed Tomography, also known as the SCCT, and they are having their 12th annual meeting in July, and this episode will be released just ahead of that. They wanted to pair with us to do an episode on coronary CT angiography. We had two experts, once again, from the SCCT. Our first our first expert was Dr. Todd C. Valines. He is a fellow of the Society for Cardiovascular CT and also the president-elect of the SCCT. He is a professor of medicine at the Uniform Services University School of Medicine, and he is a program director for the Cardiology Fellowship Program in the institution where he's currently working. He's an award-winning teacher and clinical researcher in the areas of cardiovascular imaging and prevention, and we are very happy to have him on the show, along with Dr. Ahmad Slim. He is an associate professor of medicine at Tulane University and is in the process of moving jobs right now. He is also an associate professor of medicine at the Uniformed Services University. He served in the Army for over a decade at, as the director of advanced cardiac imaging and cardiovascular research in San Antonio Military Medical Center. And Dr. Slim is an expert in the field of cardiovascular imaging. He sits on the guideline and membership committees of the SCCT, in addition to being on the editorial team of the e-learning education committee for the American College of Cardiology. And we are happy to have him on the show to teach us about coronary CT along with Dr. Valines. This is a very long and very in-depth conversation on coronary CT angiography. I found it really helpful and I hope you will too. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your well, host. hello, Matt. Hi, Stuart. Uh, I was trying to say this is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello. And Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, guys. And tonight we have with us two physicians, two cardiologists from the Society for Cardiovascular Computed Tomography, which is easier to say as the SCCT. And this is Dr. Todd Valines. Hi, Dr. Valines. Hi, everyone. And Dr. Ahmad Slim. Dr. Slim. Hi, everyone. Hello. Thank you both for joining us tonight. And we have lots of questions about cardiac CT because uh, we haven't we haven't really had a chance to use it that much yet. And and definitely, I think the audience probably has a lot of questions about it too. But we always start off by just trying to get to know you a little bit. So let's start off, Dr. Slim, first. Can I ask you, if you had to describe yourself in a one-liner, kind of like you'd give on rounds in the hospital wards, 
How would you describe yourself? Wow. Um, 41-year-old guy, father of four crazy kids, and mm. addiction to technology, and uh, big nerd. <laughs> Lord of the Rings fan, so that should tell you everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Great. What, what technology are you most addicted to outside of medicine? Oh, I like IT. I like inf- health informatics and the way that it integrates oh. into uh, uh, the medical uh, records and um, all the stuff that people don't like to talk about from HL7 to uh, things that all physicians try to avoid. So, so Ahmad, I just want to tell you that I was looking to do a medical informatics uh, fellowship, and I'm currently my the wedding ring I'm wearing is the ring, the one ring to to bind them all. <laughs> you know, I was I was one step away from doing it, but I don't think my <laughs> wife would have liked it. <laughs> also, Stuart sitting outside your window. <laughs> oh no, yes, sorry, Doctor Verlines. For you, the same questions. If you had a one liner to describe yourself, what would it be? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a 44 year old uh, cardiologist, as you know, and I'm a father of two wonderful kids, and uh, you know, I'm really a big uh, sports fan, and really just passionate about. Uh, I really just you know really enjoy my patients, and you know, trying to make their lives better and preventing heart disease. It seems like uh, there's so much of it out there, and but I think we're getting there uh, one patient at a time. Stuart or Paul, do you guys have any uh, any favorite questions that you wanted to ask before we move on to the main topic? Uh, let's start with Dr. Slim. So, Stuart, you want to? Yeah. So, Dr. Slim, in in regards to to your primary profession, what are you best known as or known for? Um, I'm the advocacy guy. I'm the guy who likes the bean counting portion of it. Uh, so that's not a lot of to- that's not a topic that a lot of physicians. Mm-hmm. enjoy, but I do actually enjoy because I believe that uh, cost-effective and safe uh, medical care uh, with the patient at the center of it is uh, right. is the future. Dr. Verlines, what about you? Well, you know, I hope I'm known for a few things. And I, I you know, first and foremost, I'm very passionate about teaching. I'm a program director for the cardiology fellowship program where I train, you know, have anywhere from on average about a dozen Army, Army Navy fellows that I train every year that are cardiology um, you know, training to be cardiologists, um, but I'm also a clinical researcher, and so I'm really interested in outcomes research and how we can improve what I, and we'll talk about this tonight, but how can we can improve the status quo uh, with regards to prevention, with regards to uh, how imaging can improve efficiencies of care, um, and as the, in, you know, the incoming president for the Society of Cardiovascular CT, that's really a passion of mine, is, is uh, as Ahmad said, you know, really, really, how how do we improve care in those areas of imaging prevention and, and getting our patients better outcomes. So I think that's, that's hopefully what I'm known for. And Paul, do you have any questions you wanted to ask before we move on to the main topic here? I always like the book one. So let me ask actually Dr. Slim, even though now I feel like I might already know the answer, <laughs> but one book fiction or nonfiction that you feel like every physician should absolutely read. Uh, believe it or not, it would be um, uh, the Prince by Machiavelli. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's a great answer. Because if you understand uh, the art of war, if you understand uh, how life uh, behaves and patterns repeat themselves, you'll be able to uh, at least prepare yourself for the unexpected. So it's it's been one of these books that uh, I, I think people always assume that has a bad stigma to it, but it does apply a lot to a lot of uh, situations in life. And if you understand the book well, you can get yourself out of a lot of obstacles. Oh, that's a terrific recommendation. Dr. Valines, what about you? Well, I tell you, one of the books I just recently read that I just found really fascinating is, is the, particularly the more I've gotten involved in healthcare leadership is, um, and I, I apologize because this is written by an Army general, but this was Team of Teams, and this was by General Stanley McChrystal. And it was given to me by a mentor of mine, Alan Taylor, and it was really just talking about how, you know, we how do we build you know, really adaptive, agile teams. And I think this really is important in the healthcare world. So I, I really would be one that maybe, you know, it's not a historical book, but it's one that's really, it be recent that I found really, really kind of fun and, and, and a great read. And, and if you're Fantastic. not, if you're not a reader, there's been a couple interviews, one on the Tim Ferriss show with Dr. McChrystal or Dr. McChrystal with General McChrystal, which is, uh, which was pretty good. And so he talks a lot about his leadership philosophy on that. And I believe he has a Ted talk on leadership as well. So for those of you who, right. who don't who who are averse to books, you know, you can check those out. 
and I'll put those I'll put those in the uh, show notes for you. Well, Dr. Verlines, I wanted to start off asking you this question. Uh, we'll move on to the main topic here. So, if if you had to tell, uh, if you had to write like the Wikipedia that first paragraph on what is coronary CT angiography, what what would that sound like? Well, bottom line, I mean, real, really, if you think about it, really simple. Coronary CT angiography is just simply it's a non-invasive imaging procedure that looks at the heart arteries, called the coronary arteries. They supply blood flow to the heart muscle. Um, and it's a very unique test because historically we could only get that information invasively by putting in catheters in the patients, um, which obviously carries some, some risk and a lot of expense and time. And so this is, um, this is really what a coronary CT is. It's looking at the heart arteries. Right. I just want to know if you could touch on for our audience specifically what the differences are between just a straight-up CAC scoring and the CCTA. Mm-hmm. What's the differences? Sure. So a CAC score, a coronary artery calcium score, is a non-contrast CT scan. So it's very easy to do. You don't need an IV. It takes just literally a few seconds. Um, but all you see with regards to the heart, with regards to the coronary arteries, are calcified areas. So you do not assess stenosis. It is a measure of overall coronary plaque burden. And it has been extremely well validated as a a preventative test. So it's a test that we do in people who are generally asymptomatic, and it can help us modify um, their risk assessment. So we can have a more meaningful discussion with that patient with regards to how much, you know, whether they mean maybe need a statin. We can hopefully modify how their lifestyle is going, perhaps use other preventative therapies. But it is not telestenosis. And to see the coronary lumen, a heart artery lumen, we need to give contrast. And with coronary CTA, fortunately, as Ahmad mentioned, that amount of contrast is now extremely low. Um, you know, at my institution, we're doing coronary CTA, generally speaking, never giving more than 60 cc of intravenous contrast. And that's a dose that's really never been shown to even cause contrast-induced nephropathy. So that's the biggest difference is contrast. There's some other technical differences. Um, the dose with a calcium score is about one millisievert or less. Uh, coronary CTA, um, depending on the patient, can have a little higher radiation dose, but it's oftentimes pretty similar to a calcium score, particularly uh, with modern scanners. If you had to counsel a patient in the office that you were about to send for a CCTA, what would that sound like? The first thing is, is, you know, trying to pick that right test. I mean, if, if CT is felt to be, uh, you know, the, the best test for the patient, then I want them to understand why uh, we're mm-hmm. doing this test. And I think that's something that, you know, sometimes that's a real, you know, hey, you had this stress test, you had this funny EKG change, you keep having symptoms, we're still unsure. And I think this is probably the most accurate and definitive test, and you're a good candidate for it. But And I think discussing the safety is important. You know, none of us talked about radiation at all, even with nuclear testing, which is a very high radiation test, until the coronary CT came about. And really, you know, the test, the doses now, as Amat mentioned, are exceedingly low. And I just mentioned to them that, yeah, you will get a little contrast. The doses are very low. The radiation is now very low. And, you know, I think this is... Um, uh, and we would try to use other modalities if we thought they were better, but in this case, we, maybe this is the optimal test. Um, I let them know that you know there might, in about you know seven percent of patients, we do find incidental findings that might require other testing. Um, sometimes those incidental findings are life-saving. You know, we find things you know small lung cancers and things. Um, you know, but sometimes we find liver cysts and or other things that require testing. I just let them know about that and just you know let them you know be really honest with them. Um, and then you know I think you know lastly. Um, I think it really is important just to kind of, you know, obviously give them some, op- let them know what we what we might see in their heart arteries. And I think just like if you were doing a heart catheterization, this is an angiogram and, you know, hopefully it'll be normal. We may find plaque and, you know, and maybe that might change how we treat you. You know, if we've got a patient who's reticent to go on aspirin and statin therapy. Um, but I think that's it. And then lastly, the biggest thing is preparation. And so, you know, preparing for a CT scan, we want them to, you know, not eat for four hours before they come to the test. We don't want them taking um, things like Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra because, you know, we're going to give them nitroglycerin. Um, we give them just some basic education on what to expect that day. Uh, we typically give them beta blockers that take about an hour or two before the test, et cetera. And so we want to make sure that they're really well educated so they get the best possible test. Is 
is the beta blocker dose typically handled by the cardiologist supervising the test, or is that something that I should be ordering as the primary care doc? I would say talk to your talk to your scanners and see the system that they use. Uh, every system is a little bit different. I mean, in, in my own system, if if I'm ordering the test and I'm somebody who does the test, you know, I'll typically prescribe an oral beta blocker prior. But if you're in a system where you don't have, you know, the ability to do that, they can use IV uh, beta blockade. The thing I would say is that regardless of which system you use, it's very safe. And so, you know, whether you give oral beta blockers, um, you know, we get 50, 100 milligrams uh, before, or whether you give IV beta blockers, the, the literature has shown that that, those people drive home, they don't pass out, they don't have syncope, it's a very weak blood pressure effect when you give it as a single dose, and it's very safe. I mean, the patients feel a little fatigued, they might get a headache with the nitroglycerin, but all of that is transient. Um, so I would just talk with the people that you're working with, see their preference and how they would like you to do it. Hopefully they're making it easy for you. I mean, I think it ought to be easy for the ordering providers to say, hey, I want a coronary CT, you can order it, and they'll hopefully take care of the pre-medication for you, I would hope. And if you're interested, again, we have resources on uh, SCCT Advocacy website where we have, we do have information on how to uh, create pathways and how to educate patients. And if, if the system that you work with, um, you are the one who ends up ordering the medication, we do have um, uh, pathways for you that you can utilize in your clinic uh, that allows you to safely provide the drug and educate the patient. Dr. Slim this this test, at least in the the institutions where I've worked, it's either not used because it was it was called too expensive, or we just didn't have people to read it, uh, or it it seems like different cardiologists are using it different ways, and the primary care folks are a little bit confused on how to use it. So, why do you think this topic is so controversial or poorly understood? Um, I think we have if, to be able to answer the question. You have to kind of um, go back in time uh, for the advent of CT um, when when the technology first started. And Dr. Valines uh, was with me in the trenches uh, when we had only the 16 and the 32 slice uh, scanners. And um, there, you know, these these were scanners that had their own limitations. Uh, they came with a little bit of um, a higher radiation dose than usual. And uh, we were not able to identify with good accuracy obstructive lesions. So there was that assumption that the test leads to more testing. Um, it's just one more test to be layered on top of everything else. Now, fast forward a decade later, uh, now we have uh, third generation scanners where the radiation dose is one third that of a nuclear stress test. In, in some scanners, what we call the high pitch scanners, it's less, less than one millisiever, which is unheard of. So from that perspective, we, you know, we've advanced significantly. But from a cost perspective, now we have two major trials uh, that if, if not showing that it's cost neutral, it's cost effective, and in some cases even reducing the incidence of myocardial infarction. Now, uh, there are some criticisms still now uh, that, that technology leads, because we look at anatomy, uh, to more um, uh, revascularization. Um, but even that is, is, is off balance by the fact that we have less patients going to invasive angiography using coronary CT that are normal uh, as compared to the usual standard of care. So in, in my mind, that balance is actually equal. Um, and in the sense of, um, you know, if you look at it, like I said, I, I like bean counting, if you want to put it this way, it mm -hmm. is a cost effective, it is an efficient test. And it's tests that identify patients who needs to be treated with, uh, with a statin therapy. And there are a lot of studies now uh, from the confirmed registry, and Dr. Valines was, was um, influential in it, looking at statin therapy and the fact that it does reduce outcomes, all the way to even looking at Scott Hart and after 52 days after initiation of therapy impact on, on, on MI. So as a test, after a decade of misconception, I think we are primed. Um, to, to, to lead the stage at this point. But uh, we really need to focus more on education and eliminating the misconceptions. Sort of broadly speaking, I guess I had a question about the clinical context in which uh, the coronary CT angiography would use. Like, it seems like there's some burgeoning literature about the use in the emergency department for, for restratification. And then Dr. Valines alluded to maybe even a role in just preventive medicine. So I'm just wondering, in what settings is this being uh, accepted and commonly used? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, actually, if you look, there's a, a guideline or 
uh, a statement that was released both by ACR and ACC, specifically talking about the impact of um, newer technologies on patients in the emergency department. And uh, it was um, uh, released in January 2016. And it focuses on the patients coming in with acute chest pain in the ED. And if you look at all modalities, uh, cardiac CT gets appropriate across the line in majority of situations, aside from patients with pure ACS, as compared to even uh, what's accepted as, as norm from treadmill to treadmill echo and nuclear stress testing, there is some variability with some may be appropriate and some not rarely appropriate. So to for CTA and emergency department to take such a leading role, and that's just simply because of all the criticism that we had up front, that led to significant amount of randomized clinical trials in CT and emergency department. And that varies from, um, you know, if we're talking about CT stat, RAMICAT 1 and 2, even some of the trials that we did uh, in, in the military when I was in active duty, uh, we were able to safely disposition patients under four hours from the emergency department uh, with safe outcomes for a year or two. And it was extremely cost effective. So not only that it is safe, we're able to identify the patients with that disease and provide the, the warranty period that every emergency department physician is looking for. Right. But also we were able to identify the patients that needed therapy, the patients mm -hmm. that otherwise would have been missed by conventional testing that's purely focused on obstructive disease. So, Versus yeah. if, you look, if you transition to the outpatient setting, we have two major clinical trials that were just released recently, Promise and Scott Hart, with thousands of patients enrolled. And again... CTA was primed, if not equal to conventional testing. Uh, it actually was uh, influential in treatment of patients and, in some instances, reducing the instance of myocardial infarction. Wonderful. Uh, so, Dr. Verlein, did you have something to well, add? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I think when you, your question about patient selection, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, why isn't this used more? And so I think your, your question is a really important one. So CT is a fabulous test for appropriate patients. It's not the test for every patient. And so right now there are um, appropriate use criteria and several guidelines which really identify who are the best patients for coronary CT angiography. And it really depends on the clinical scenario. So, for example, um, if someone has stable ischemic heart disease or stable chest pain symptoms, you know, these are typically patients who are low to intermediate risk. They, it is a great test for people, particularly if they have an uninterpretable EKG or if they've had, they've had equivocal uh, prior non-invasive testing. You know, so the person who's gotten a treadmill but they had chest pain on the treadmill and funny EKG changes. The person who's had a nuclear test and you get this report back and it says some stress score of three, prognostically normal, but still not normal, and they've got a patient sitting in front of you who's having chest pain. And we, historically, we were left with, um, you know, do we just take this person to the cath lab or not? So it's a very good gatekeeper test to, you know, when you think about a couple hundred dollar CT scan versus a several thousand dollar invasive coronary angiography test, uh, particularly in a first test for people who don't have known disease. So, you know, generally speaking, we're not going to send people with multi multiple stents to, um, you know, get a coronary CT. They have to be in sinus rhythm and be, you know, not have terrible kidneys so they can get a, a relatively low contrast dose. Now, the acute chest pain indication, as Ahmad mentioned, um, you know, that's, that's also a place where CT is very helpful, and it's probably what the most studied um, imaging test in acute chest pain that we have, and that's why, as Ahmad mentioned, the most recent multi-societal appropriate use criteria made CT the, 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 really the only um, class one recommended test um, for most for, for patients in the acute uh, setting. Um, and, and so, but again, it's not for every patient. It's for patients who, you know, have negative troponins, have low-level equivocal troponins, you know, people who clearly do not have high-risk presentations. A CT is a way to, you know, to really try to expedite their care. So, you know, think about how we care for patients today. A lot of these patients come in and they sit in our emergency rooms for 23, 24 hours, and then they either get an outpatient referral or they get um, sometimes a stress testing in the hospital. And this is you know, certainly probably safe, but oftentimes costly and inefficient. Sometimes CT, if you have well-trained uh, people that can do high-quality testing, can get them home. Now, in the prevention area, what I was referring to is the fact that the unique feature of CT is that you see non-obstructive coronary disease. And so unlike all other stress tests, you know, think about you get a normal nuclear stress mm -hmm. test, what are you telling the patient? You're telling the patient you don't have obstructive coronary disease, right. or it's very unlikely that you do. 
Uh, and that's where CT can modify how we treat patients. So it's more than just a diagnostic test with regards to obstructive disease. It also kind of right. is the only test that identifies disease that's non-obstructive that we just don't see in other tests that often may modify therapy. Dr. Valines, you said something about, so you kind of talked about two different ways that the coronary CTA can be used. You said first for someone with more like stable angina symptoms that that was low or intermediate risk. Can you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit? Are, are you saying this person doesn't have doesn't have known coronary artery disease and they have what they're having some sort of chronic chest pain syndrome? It's not if they were high risk, I imagine you'd send them right to cath. So you're saying lower intermediate risk. These people, if if you're not really sure from the story and they have chronic chest pain, then you might use a CCTA. Can you expand on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, coronary CT is a fabulous test in patients who do not have known coronary disease. Um, you know, so if you've got a patient who, who I mentioned earlier who's got, you know, multiple stents or has really extensive obstructive coronary disease, um, I think functional testing is really um, probably the, the, the most proven approach in many of the patients or most of the patients. Um, when, I, when we talk about risk stratification, you know, we, the guidelines use things like the Diamond and Forrester approach. It's, it, it, you know, we can discuss, we could debate the accuracy of that approach, but generally speaking, it takes into account, you know, wh- what is the patient telling us? How typical is their angina? Um, and what do we know about the patient? What's the risk factor burden? And we make a clinical assessment based on, you know, Diamond and Forrester and our clinical gestalt about how likely is this to be obstructive coronary disease. Um, you know, in those patients who are, inter, you know, low to intermediate risk, which is really, if you look at the guideline, a pretest probability anywhere between, um, you know, 10 to 15 percent up to about 85 to 90 percent, this is where CT really shines, particularly in those without known disease. Um, and so, and if you look at the landmark trials in this area, that's the patients who have undergone CT. And if you look at the, the trials that looked at the accuracy a CT. That's really, I think, where CT is, it is performs well. And if you look in the appropriate use criteria, and you know, our listeners, those are easy to find online. If you're not sure about who you should get a CT from, um, you know, that's really where CT is a very appropriate test in those low to intermediate risk patients. And if you look at accuracy in those patients, when you think about sensitivity, so you know, the sensitivity of are you going to detect obstructive coronary if it's there. I think it's been pretty well shown to be the most sensitive non-invasive test for detecting angiographically significant coronary disease. So, and this this is kind of to either of you. I, I wanted to somewhat segue here to uh, a question that, that begs to be asked here. Um, we were kind of talking about this uh, behind the scenes here. Uh, I'm looking at one of the... the um, I'm not sure which uh, insurance company this is this is from looking at the criteria for um, reimbursing CCTA. And one of the indications that I'm reading here says patients with moderate or high risk of CAD who have a high risk occupation that would endanger others in the event of myocardial infarction. I want to know if, if you could speak on to that for just one second. Well, why don't you? Yeah. <laughs> we've uh, we've actually have had uh, Dr. Valenz and myself done a lot of work when we Uh, in the military looking specifically at high-risk occupation. Uh, If you track back to uh, the autopsy trial that was done by Dr. Eckhart and published in Jack, uh, specifically talks about the uh, the incidence of sudden cardiac death in the military and high-risk occupation. And um, just- Is this one from the 1970s? Uh, No, actually, this is is a modern publication. He followed over 30 years of uh, autopsies that were done and published it, I want to say back in 2015, 2016. Okay, okay. And um, uh, specifically looked, especially in, in this decade of conflict, at the incidence of death from combat, from suicide, and compared um, sudden cardiac death from cardiovascular disease uh, to it. So if you look at it, it's averaged between 19 to 21 per 100,000 uh, death for suicide and combat. But if you were over the age of 45, uh, in the military, whether in, uh, you were in, in combat or in, in, in garrison, um, the incidence uh, rose up all the way to 112 in 100,000. So almost three, four-fold just by virtue of, of occupation. And um, this has been reproduced in multiple um, uh, other uh, uh, occupations, in firefighters, 
pilots and uh, police officers uh, from work done by uh, Matt Buda. And uh, even NASA at this point has adopted some approach that involves custom scoring because of the high-risk occupation. Um, the modality by itself is effective uh, in identifying patients who do have uh, non-obstructive disease, just like uh, um, Dr. Valines was alluding to. And these are the patients that we know from a lot of the uh, published data. If we intervene early and we start them on, uh, on, on therapy, we can modify their outcomes in the, in the long run, especially the more segments they have with non-obstructive disease as compared to normal, uh, normal segments. Uh, so for that population, for high-risk occupation, we know they are at a higher risk of events than the general population. And, and to break in here, Dr. Slim, the, it, it sounds like you, you mentioned CAC scoring in, in that population has been, has been used. Has CCTA been studied at all in that population? And is there, I guess, is the idea you, you, talk, has, you talked about the consensus statement, is the idea like what age do we start? Like if someone's, a, if you're a 40-year-old policeman or fireman, should we start doing a CAC score and CCTA? And do you think we'll have that answer in the next few years? Uh, well, if, if you actually apply the current data to it, you should have the answer right now. Because if you look at the fact that 45 years of age and higher had almost three to four fold increased risk of events. And we have data from um, uh, the MESA trial and uh, on calcium scoring in 45 and above. And we have data on calcium scoring in uh, firefighters and uh, police officers uh, where you know we can't identify disease early. I would say uh, it behooves us to start screening the population at age 45 and above uh, with, uh, with calcium scoring. Just from the, uh, the cohort that we have currently, over 30 years worth of data on high-risk occupation saying 45 and higher, you are three, four-folds increased risk of event rates um, and we really need to focus uh, on, on preventing disease in that population. And calcium score is very predictive of it. Yeah, I would just make the distinction with that. You know, I think with, re- with regards to your question is, you know, you, you, you use the terms calcium scoring and CTA. And I think, you know, it's important for the listeners to understand that, you know, calcium scoring is a great test in these high-risk individuals as a screening test for plaque burden and to get them on preventative therapy. In some cases, you do see so much calcium that you, the risk of obstructive disease is high enough um, that you will go on to functional testing or even a CT angiogram. Now, within the high-risk population, CTA is also another test that can be used when, when you have to do testing for um, obstructive coronary disease, whether it's a symptomatic pilot or a symptomatic firefighter or by their regulations, sometimes we know that they're required to undergo, based on their age, you know, for example, some of the pilots, they're required to undergo testing, such as, you know, annual or semi-annual or, you know, whatever it is, stress testing. I think that's where CT does have a role if you are mandated to do that type of testing, quite frankly, just because it's just so accurate. And, um, and I think that's, when you look at the literature from a prognostic standpoint, you know, if you have a normal, a truly normal CTA, then you really have an excellent prognosis. Okay. D- Dr. Valines, can you, t- can you maybe tie that to a case and say, is there a young man or young woman or middle-aged man or middle-aged woman, I guess I should say, uh, that, that you recently saw and thought was a high-risk person based on their occupation or maybe family history and, and used either a CAC score or a CCTA? In the military, you know, I've had new patients who, um, you know, they're having symptoms and the question then comes up, you know, can they deploy into an austere environment? You know, can, you know and, and maybe they've had stress testing that's equivocal, um, but we know that in the back of our minds, you know, gosh, I want to be really just definitive. So this concept of diagnostic certainty has been something that's been looked at in um, many of our recent clinical trials. And so, I, you know, I'll give you an example. I've got a, you know, a, a 44-year-old active duty colonel who had history of atypical chest pain and had normal stress testing um, and just felt more fatigued with exertion. And, you know, we, you know, she'd had a calcium score, score was zero, um, but in a stress test, which was normal. And we, because of her current symptoms, did a coronary CTA. And she actually had a very high rate stenosis in her proximal right coronary artery. And, you know, she was somebody who um, ended up having an intervention and, you know, based on the degree of her refractory symptoms. So, you know, we've all got some, uh, examples where, and this is somebody in whom if you did a risk score on her, you would say, gosh, you're low risk. 
she she was a very low risk individual made by her age and her lack of risk factors. Um, and that's what we see with anatomic imaging, whether it be calcium scoring, as you heard with Dr. Heck and Dr. Budoff, or whether it be anatomic angiography with coronary CT. You know, we, we, we see that, you know, many times that our risk prediction tools like Diamond Forrester and, you know, for our asymptomatic patients, you know, our risk, our risk scoring tools are just, um, the accuracy is only modest. Mm-hmm. And, and in our business, when you're dealing with, you know, pilots and firefighters and people in whom you're going to send to an austere environment where you, you really, you know, you, you got to be right. You got to know because um, you don't have the resources to care for them if they get downrange. I think this, the CT is a very attractive option, particularly when it's normal. You can say, hey, listen, you can go anywhere in the world. Your risk is so low with the normal CTA. And that's what I think your, your listeners will, you know, I really enjoy that side of it is telling patients also, you know mm-hmm. what? I don't know if you need a statin or an aspirin. You're 45 or 48. You have absolutely zero plaque. I really think this anatomic test de-risks you, if you will. And right. you can go anywhere in the world, and you're going to do great. Okay. That's so the, point. the the question that I have to ask you now, I know my former residents have been dying for me to get this question answered. You mentioned this lady had a CAC score of zero, still having symptoms. Or Sorry. So she had a CAC score of zero. She's having symptoms, so th- th- there are separate things, right? You said CAC score, that's best for asymptomatic patients to try to risk stratify, like does this person need a statin? Do they need aggressive medical therapy to pre- prevent progression of plaque formation? But for patients who are having symptoms and they come to the ER with an acute chest pain syndrome, they have a CAC score of mm-hmm. zero, should we get a CCTA and how how do we handle that situation? Even with a CAC score of zero, can that person, can we hang anything on mm-hmm. that if the person's having chest pain? Yeah. So so it's a controversial area. I, I think what we know is that in symptomatic patients, the calcium score does very well, but it's not perfect. And so, um, you know, if and it actually performs, if you look from a diagnostic perspective, it performs as well as almost any stress test. So if you have a calcium score of zero, it is very unlikely, you know, typically we would say less than 5% that this person has obstructive coronary disease as the cause of their symptoms. However, if you look at those who have calcium scores of zero and actually have obstructive disease, which does occur, you know, it's less than 5%, it's typically in patients who have multiple risk factors. And obviously the more concerning their symptomatology, the more likely the calcium score missed it. And that's particularly true in, in, in some of our younger patients who have a lot of risk factors. The use of calcium scoring in symptomatic patients is very controversial. I think what's happened in our own practice is we're, you know, if we're going to send someone to the CT scanner and we can do a, a, a coronary CTA with contrast, it's such a low contrast dose. We use a radiation dose that's basically equivalent to a calcium score. Why wouldn't we just go ahead and do the coronary CTA if we've got the trained people and the expertise to do it? So I think most of us use coronary CT angiogram in the emergency departments. And the guidelines and appropriate use criteria certainly back that up. Now, this is a controversial topic, and there's clinical trials that suggest that actually calcium scoring as a, as a screening test for maybe a full CTA. There's a recent Crescent uh, 2 trial. Maybe that's an okay approach in low-risk patients. You're probably not going to miss many people. Um, but, you know, I think in my own perspective, I think doing a, a, a coronary CTA was, would be the most accurate approach. And if you go to the clinical trial, that's the way all the randomized clinical trials were done. They did not do calcium, the, the large-scale randomized clinical trial. They did not do calcium scoring. They did coronary CTA. And the appropriate use criteria make coronary CTA its most appropriate imaging test. They don't address calcium scoring. And the European guidelines and American guidelines for uh, chest pain uh, uh, certainly advocate for coronary CTA as opposed to calcium scoring. Um, but it, so it is unlikely, but, and it works pretty well, but it's not perfect. And and Doctor Doctor Slim, when this this has happened a couple times, so you I've seen patients in the emergency department with my residents. The resident says, "Okay, three years ago, this person had a CAC score of zero, and they had a a C, uh, coronary CT angio with minimal luminal irregularities." And what do you do with that patient if they they're coming in with a chest pain syndrome? 
of course, if it sounds classic for for angina, you're gonna you're gonna admit that patient and do further workup. But if it's kind of an atypical story, they're coming in with chest pain. They have this CAC score and CCTA that were negative three years ago. What's the warranty on that? And should we do a different test, a stress test? Should we repeat the CCTA? What would you do? There are a lot of um, studies that specifically looked at the different um, lesions, uh, whether they are. 0 to 25 percent, 25 to 50, 50 to 75, and um, um, how many segments are involved. And we know that if more than four to five segments are involved, the outcomes um, of progressing towards ACS and having events is much higher than one or two segments. So I I wish the answer is uh, straightforward. Um, They have... um, not obstructive disease, therefore do you know do nothing? It's you know it's been two to three years, um, but uh, the the answer is not so straightforward. But I wouldn't I would not recommend re-exposing the patients to more and more radiation at this point, um, unless you know we think this is this is solid. This is more than one segment. They do have more than uh, um, more than risk factor involved. A strong family history, and even then I would say um, let's go to the basics. Um, let's just do a regular treadmill because at this point we know they have disease. We are treating the fact that they have non-obstructive disease. The question is, do they have obstructive disease to cause angina? And I think treadmill would be very useful in that setting. Uh, I hope this answers the question in a way that you are looking for. I think it does. And and I think probably the a logical follow-up question would be when we get a report for a coronary CT angiogram, what is what does a negative study how would the radiologist write that or how would the cardi, cardi the cardiologist who's who's reading that imaging write that and and how are the reports actually uh offered to us? Um interestingly enough um right now there there's actually a, a new statement that was released by the Society of Cardiovascular CT specifically talking about the reporting piece. And in the reporting piece, aside from the fact that in the past we used to say for normal, no angiographic disease, we actually have a scoring, um, if you want to put it this way, a scoring mechanism by which we give you um, a a CADRAS number. And that CADRAS number, in a way, correlates with management. And if you have patients with CADRAS of zero, these are the patients that have no angiographic disease. These are the patients that when we start talking about warranty period, I kind of like to use that word because really that's what we're looking for in patients with uh, no uh, no prior history of CAD is if we do tell them they are normal, what's the warranty period? Because if you look at all the conventional tests, that warranty period goes between one to two years versus if you look at CT, we're starting to push the envelope two, three, and in some cases even five years depending on which study you wow. look at. Um, and so you, you're really looking at a warranty period that comes with CADRADs of zero that you don't otherwise get with conventional testing at fraction of the radiation and fraction of the cost. Um, so this is the benefit of it. Now, if you start progressing, we take it from CADRADs zero to one or two, and this is when you're dealing with your non-obstructive disease. CADRADs uh, three, you're dealing with your moderate lesion, that lesion between 50 to 69%, where we do... Um, have um, different ways where we want to assess whether this is a hemodynamically significant lesion, whether with treadmill or other testing. And, you know, with the advent of CTFFR, we don't even need to expose the patient to more testing. We can utilize the same set of images and identify the lesions and see if these lesions are hemodynamically significant or not. And it's been proven to be even cost-effective with the platform um, um, uh, trial. Um, so, and then you progress to CADRADS four and five, and these are the patients that will benefit from, um, you know, you start talking about benefit from revascularization because now we're talking about over seventy percent. That you don't yeah. think that you know, you know, aspirin alone will, you know, will alter the the symptomatology because remember at the end of the day, we're really talking about symptom uh, symptom relief in that patient in these in these patients. Uh, so, yeah. um, you know, we do have a nice statement that was released where the uh, standardized reporting, and this is as a society we're pushing for, for standardized reporting, utilizing the CADRADS. So just like you said, you know what you what, what it means when it comes back to you and says CADRADS zero. This is when you can look at the patient in the eye and simply say, your event rate is low. And that mm. statement alone has been proven in clinical trial to decrease uh, the chest pain re-evaluation. So if you look wow. at a lot of the trials, 
whether it's in the acute setting in the emergency department or in the outpatient setting, there's almost a four to five percent reduction difference between the two arms, conventional and the CT arm, where in the CT arm it's about one or one one to one point five percent of patients will come back with recurrent chest pain versus the conventional arm, you're looking at about five to six percent coming back with chest pain. It doesn't sound like a lot, but this is an absolute difference. And from uh, if you look at it from radiation dose, re-exposure, re-evaluation costs, these are a lot of things that makes a big difference in the long run from the reassurance perspective. And even if you take that to the high-risk occupation, just like Dr. Valais was trying to allude to, that warranty period where you're simply sending someone downrange to, you know, to fight the fight where everyone else is betting on their life, having that warranty of saying, you know, CADRAS zero, um, your event rate is so low, it's, you know, it, it's practically zero for the next two to three years is, is huge, uh, especially when everyone else and the mission is dependent on them. Yeah, I would just, a couple things is, you know, the, the CADRAS statement is really meant to, to, to do for your listeners what they need and what we've heard, and that is we want standardized reporting. There's a lot that we see, it's described, some of these reports can be very detailed, but at the bottom line, it says, okay, this is their current status, and it gives a treatment recommendation. It says, you know, your CADRAS category, and this is the treatment. It also comments on vulnerability and some other things that your readers, uh, this is a new feature. It talks about, you know, some some things that might influence um, their use of preventative therapies. Now, I want to throw a couple numbers at you. You know, one of the things we know with CT is there is a tremendous difference between risk with a normal test, a truly normal test, and those who have um, an abnormal test, so obstructive disease. And I'll just give you some numbers. And I think this is what makes it very unique to CT. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier that, you know, when you have a normal CT, you're not just saying you don't have obstructive coronary disease, right? So, for example, I could have a nuclear stress test where I've got 50% stenosis in all three vessels, but I've got no flow limitation and I'm reassured. Whereas in CT, mm-hmm. uh, we would see that and we would say, yeah, you don't have probably flow limiting disease, but you have a lot of plaque and we need to probably get you in shape and treat you a little differently. But if you look at those rates, the annualized rate of myocardial infarction or cardiac death with a truly normal CT is 0.02%. And if you contrast that to the, the, the annualized rate for like an exercise treadmill test, it's 0.8%, a nuclear stress test, it's 0.65%. If you have a patient who can't exercise and it's the pharmacological test, it's almost 2%. Um, and, you know, this is, I think, you know, if you correlate that with a, an abnormal CT, it's over 3%. And so you see this huge difference between normal and abnormal that you don't see with any other test. For example, a stress test rate goes from 0.8% to 2%. And I think it has to do with this, the fact that we do see this non-obstructive disease and, and you can really, it's kind of, you know, putting people to a more, a, a little higher level of precision when you hear normal CT. And I think you'll see that in the CAD rate that says, hey, listen, you need to look for another cause of this person's chest pain. They have less than 25% plaque, look for something else, and they have a very good prognosis. And that's something that the listeners can tell their patients. And I'm glad Dr. Valines brought it up, and this is a pet peeve of mine. We do see in the hospital setting significant amount of use of um, chemical stress testing, Lexiscan, Mm-hmm. Uh, just for expediency's sake. And um, there is actually um, no warranty that comes with that, that, it, that comes out as, as, as normal, what you expect is normal. The way that we define low risk is less than 1% event rate, intermediate is between 1% to 3 and over 3% is high risk. But if you look at uh, the data, um, when you compare chemical stress testing to treadmill stress testing, even in the normal setting, if, if you grab all comers, it's about 1.8% event rate, even in a normal setting. So when we grab someone uh, young, but they can walk, and we just do chemical stress testing on everyone, we can never look them in the eye and say you're low risk because their event rate is still at 1.8%. And same thing applies for diabetic females. If you look at the biggest meta-analysis that was done in nuclear stress testing, even with normal stress tests, their event rate is over 2%. For our audience, how would you recommend that they use CCTA in their practice? So for the outpatient primary care physician or primary care manager? Yeah, well, I, I would say, you know, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about somebody who is at, at high enough risk to do testing, so this is somebody, if you're thinking about, gosh, should I do a stress test in this person? 
and they don't have known coronary disease. I think you, you should, all of them should consider CT, coronary CT. Uh, it may not be the best test for every patient, but, and we can talk about, you know, maybe some patient characteristics where you would choose CT. But I think the recent clinical trial data suggests that it's at least as good, if not better, than any of our current non-invasive tests. So, for example, as a result of seeing the non-obstructive disease, we actually have seen, for example, in the Scott Heart trial, significant reductions in, myocard- reductions in myocardial infarction. This is true in the Scott Heart trial and it's included in meta-analysis. So it gives your, your, your listeners, like I mentioned already, I, kind of, I call it a twofer. You know, do they have obstructive disease? Well, you're not going to miss obstructive disease with CT. Um, if anything, the only criticism we, we see with CT is that it's just so sensitive um, and it sees so much disease. But you also get this, this, this risk assessment of their atherosclerotic burden. So I would argue if you're considering a non-invasive test and you have access to high-quality, low-radiation, low-contrast dose CT, which any of your modern CT labs should give you, that CT should be a consideration, particularly in patients who have had prior non-invasive functional testing. You know, so just doing the same test again, I think CT is an excellent gatekeeper to kind of say, okay, we're going to get an answer. And so I would just say if you're considering non-invasive testing, they don't have known disease, um, and that's a patient who has, is a good candidate for, for coronary CT. And to honestly put it in perspective, and this is just from cost-effectiveness analysis, on average, annually, uh, we see about 7 million folks with acute chest pain in the emergency department. 5.5 million go home because they have nothing. About 1.5 million, um, they have ACS. And about 175,000 patients come back with MI because of missed MI. And that 175,000 uh, costs the healthcare system a significant amount of money in either litigation or trials or um, uh, so on and so forth. So this is why you see recurrent testing happens on on inpatient and uh, emergency department setting. We talk about it in the sense of defensive medicine. Uh, but imagine a test that can um, that can anatomically identify the patients with non-obstructive disease that you otherwise miss or, or that 175,000 that we otherwise uh, uh, miss. And we know from Scott Hart that if they started on therapy about 52 days later, the, the curve will diverge and they, they definitely have lower incidence of myocardial infarction. Dr. Doctor Slim, I wanted to ask you this question. This is kind of an adjacent, it, it's a little bit related to what we're talking about, or a lot related, but it's not that specifically about cardiac CT. But the people have said, I've heard this on rounds when, I'm work, when I was doing cardiology rotations coming through training, the patients with the 90% stenosis versus the patient with like the 40 or 50% stenosis, that 50% plaque is, is probably softer and more likely to rupture and cause an ACS. Is there any truth to that? And does that relate at all to the cardiac CT angiogram? When we start talking about non-obstructive disease, it's often missed with uh, conventional testing. And this, yeah. these are the plaques that are vulnerable. These are the plaques that we can identify in CT that we can analyze, and there are high-risk features that we talk about in CT, whether positive remodeling, spotty calcification, the napkin ring appearance, and these are all things that we can identify and actually does come within the CADRAS reporting where we can identify these lesions and provide you with a modifier to the CADRAS where we say there are evidence of vulnerable plaques in in these patients. Excellent. and that, oh, go ahead. that's, go ahead, that's a great product, knowing that you can actually not only get um, a, a report system that provides you with results, but um, plaque analysis and even how to manage these patients. I think there is a lot for that utility that comes with CTA that goes beyond conventional testing. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, what you referred to uh, talking on rounds is something that and we were just talking on when I was rounding in my team just the other day. And, and it's this number that the majority of myocardial infarctions, if you were to look at the stenosis that existed in the culprit lesion, you know, the lesion that ruptured open and caused the severe, um, you know, stenosis and the acute coronary syndrome, if you were to look at those prior, just prior to their myocardial infarction, the majority of them were considered non-obstructive. So this right. kind of seminal paper back in the 80s and early 90s, you know, about 70% of the lesions prior to MI were less than 50%. And what we've learned through both intravascular ultrasound, CT, and other modalities is that, yeah, it is those plaques that have a lot of plaque 
burden. They've got a lot of positive remodeling. They've got a lot of, you know, very low attenuation cholesterol content. And, and, um, and those are the ones that are most likely to rupture. Now, the 90% stenosis is still probably, prob- if you look at probability, is still um, individually very likely to cause ACS as well. And so it's not a, it's necessarily safe, but it may be a stable lesion with none of those features and may never cause a microinfarction. So you're right, non-obstructive disease really does matter. And it's what we see on CT that it really, for me, is so helpful in managing our patients. Yeah, I, th- I think the article that you're referring to is from uh, 1991. It's, it's the underlying coronary yep. lesion myocardial infarction. That's right. So. That's right. The real seminal, seminal, seminal right. article, and it really speaks to. I think you know we've talked a lot about non-obstructive disease. You know, the majority of people who go to CT do not have obstructive disease. If you look at most of the series, if you're if you're scanning people who are appropriate for CT, typically 20% or less are going to have obstructive disease. And so what you're left with is is plaque. And, you know, many of them are totally normal, and you're left giving them good news. But we're kind of left with this group of people and what to do with them. And I think that's, from, from my perspective as a preventive imager, um, this is really exciting work. And I guess a, a follow-up question that I just thought of when you said that. So you scan a patient in the emergency department. They have, they have non-obstructive disease. And can you can you say this is not ACS? Maybe maybe there was a ruptured plaque there that or a thrombus, partial thrombus that that is now gone. Based maybe they took aspirin on route and now now it's gone. Do you think that happens? Yeah. Do we still need to watch that person and rule them out? Or if, if they're in the emergency department, they get a non-obstructive scan. Can we send them? Well, that's a great question. If you look at the clinical trials, and and there are now four really well done randomized clinical trials. They all use this stenosis. Um, threshold of 50%. And so if you had a stenosis less than 50%, um, they felt that the risk of acute coronary syndrome was very, very low. Now, so I think that cutoff really has been well studied. Now, I will say that if you see a lesion that you're not, you know, you're kind of like, gosh, it's approaching 50% and there are high risk plaque features. So what I mean by that are you see a lot of um, you know, positive remodeling, which means the vessel has expanded outward to accommodate all the plaque. You see, um, you know, spotty calcification. Um, you know, you see a low attenuation plaque. Now, those features are associated with acute coronary syndrome. And in fact, if you see those and you're not sure, I think you should admit the patient and do functional testing and treat them as possible ACS. And in fact, if you look at the both the CADRADs for acute coronary syndrome or for, sorry, for acute chest pain, they do make that caveat. They say, generally speaking, if you're less than 50%, it's very unlikely that you have acute coronary syndrome. However, if you have these plaque features, you may want to treat them cautiously and just treat them as possible ACS. And so I think your, your point is a very good one. It is possible. There's very good data from the Romaquette trial that if you have these adverse plaque features, they do increase your risk of having ACS. So those are people I would say, yeah, if you see a lot of those things. Now, if you see a 25% stenosis that has none of those things, it's exceedingly unlikely that the aspirin that they took on the way to the emergency room cleaned that up. Stuart and Paul, I wanted to give you guys a last call for questions here. I think we've gone about an hour and, uh, and see if you have any questions. So I've I've got I've got two. One is from one of our listeners who gave me a question, and another one is is from me myself. Is there any situation or scenario that you would recommend a myocardial perfusion scan over CCTA? Yeah, well, you know, I I absolutely would. Would I mean I think you know again you know we've heard a lot about CT today. Uh, you know, this is really about, for me, it's about patients and choosing the right mm-hmm. test for the right patient. And, and, and absolutely, there are many scenarios where CT is, is, is not the best test, and sometimes it's the wrong test. And so I think the patients with known coronary disease, and there's a lot of them out there, um, you know, CT is good at looking at, you know, large stent patency. It's good at looking at bypass graft patency. Um, you know, but generally speaking, those are patients who I think a microperfusion test is a great test for those patients. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you've got patients in whom have a prior CT with equivocal findings and they don't want to go to the cath lab and do invasive FFR, um, yeah, I think a nuclear stress test is a great test for them. Um, and so, I, absolutely. I don't know. Ahmad, I'll let you jump in here. Just like uh, uh, Dr. Valines alluded to earlier, um, patients with coronary artery disease, there's extensive data on the utility of myocardial perfusion in that population. 
Another population that's not very well tested that we at this point don't recommend the use of CT is for pre-op testing. Mm. Um, this is this is not something that we do on uh, uh, on regular basis or in patients that are asymptomatic. We don't recommend just everyone who is asymptomatic to simply mm. just go ahead and do um, um, you know cardiac CT uh, on them just for preventive measures. Uh, but you know, as far as myocardial perfusion, just because of the large amount of radiation dose, and this is something that you know maybe we touched base on earlier. But you know, when you're talking about myocardial perfusion testing, you're talking about an average of 12 to 15 millisievert. And to put it in perspective to the listeners, if you live on Earth for a year, you get exposed to about 3.6 millisievert of radiation. So a single nuclear stress test is about four folds of the annual radiation exposure. And there are data, especially in females under the age of 35, that there is correlation um, and increased risk of breast cancer that comes with myocardial perfusion. So we really have to be very cognizant about the amount of radiation that we deliver to these patients, especially now that CTA technology has advanced so much that a median dose is, is less than three millisievert on, at any given day. So we, we can deliver the same accuracy, the same test uh, with less than the annual exposure. And then the question from one of our listeners, it says, uh, how small of a vessel can you see on CCTA and uh, does it matter anyways if you can see the, the obstructive coronary artery disease? That's yeah, a great question. I mean, we can see vessels, you know, down to the, to the you know, sub-millimeter um, size. I mean, you know, obviously when you get the vessel that small clinically, you know, you might ask, is it clinically relevant? And I think that's a good question. You know, it's, it's you know, someone has, you know, plaque or obstruction in a very, very distal branch of a small diagonal artery. Uh, that's certainly not an artery that we would do interventions on from, you know, stenting. Um, so generally speaking, I would say probably not clinically helpful. Um, I mean, we can see collateral vessels on CT um, that are, you know, submillimeter. And so that the accuracy is very, very good. Um, but, yeah, I think the clinical question is a good one. Um, you know, is it clinically relevant or not? Paul, do you have any questions? Paul? We might have lost Paul here. I don't know. I think we've lost Paul. Sorry, Paul. And I, I wanted to ask each of you for one or two take-home points right now. Uh, Dr. Slim, did you have anything else you wanted to leave our listeners with? Um, it, I, I, might, I might sound biased, <laughs> which I am. Uh, <laughs> okay. But um, CTA at this point uh, is pre-positioned really to be in my mind, the test of choice for patients who are coming in with no known disease in the acute inpatient setting. Um, and um, more and more data is coming out, even on the outpatient setting, that if it's not equivalent and cost-effective, it's actually capable of identifying patients uh, early on with non-obstructive disease where we're able to alter the course and reduce the incidence of myocardial infarction by having them on the right treatment. And at the end of the day, this is our goal. Our goal is not just to order a test. Our goal is to alter management of patients and reduce outcomes. And if we have a test that can do all of the above, it should be our number one test. Agreed. Dr. Verlines, anything to add? Yeah. You know, I would just say that you know, my, my take-home point was, would be that you know, I, I think the status quo um, of how we evaluate patients with chest pain and possible angina has got to shift a little bit. And I would just, you know, all the listeners, I would ask you all, you know, if you're, if you're ordering tests for stress testing, think about coronary CT, not because, you know, I'm a, you know, with the Society of Cardiovascular CT, but you know, I'll give you some numbers. Um, you know, if you look in the Medicare population, myocardial perfusion testing is ordered 58 times as frequent as a cardiac a coronary CT. And so I'm not saying that, you know, that, that number should be one-to-one -one in a Medicare population. But the point is, is I think there are a lot of patients where it really is the best test. And as Ahmad mentioned, you know, 58 times as many nuclear tests across the country. And when we look at those same patients in those same registries, only 1.5% of them are being done with a dose less than 9 millisieverts. And the average radiation dose is 15 if you look at recent, um, recent publications um, just from 2015. So I think we can do better. And I, you know, I think we can do better in select patients where CT is appropriate to be not only more accurate, but to be safer with lower radiation and also see non-obstructive disease. So I think, you know, that's something that I would just challenge your readers 
I mean, your listeners to think about is, you know, I think we can do better, whether it's the acute, you know, chest pain center where you've got, you know, people doing 23 hours in an emergency room, getting a treadmill, you know, a CT and going home is a very attractive strategy too. So I would just, you know, leave you with that. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for all your time tonight. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, anything yeah, thank that you we for having do. us. Thank you, gentlemen. I'll let you go. Uh, you have a great evening. It was a pleasure. Yeah, well, and we'll right. go find Paul for you. Yeah. yeah thanks so much. <laughs> you can hear me. Uh, oh, there he is. Have a good night. Oh, hi, Paul. Okay. Have a good one. Okay, it's just us again, Paul. You can come out of the woodworks now. Yeah, so no, this was not just my usual silence. This was me. I was trying to get into Ward Edgewise. I'm like, what is happening? Like, I cannot believe these guys are just steamrolling me like this. And then I finally uh, figured out that, uh, yeah, my, my sound card had completely crapped oh, out. So, so sorry. I'm sorry about that. Well, hopefully your uh, salient points were... We're, we're in there somewhere. Yeah, I just want to ask about the like the patient preparation. Like, can they have tachycardia? Mm. I wanted to say they brought up the beta blockade and the renal function. Right. I wanted to talk about, but they they touched on most of it more quiet yeah. than usual. So sorry about that, guys. That's okay. That's okay. We'll have you in both the intro and outro. It'll be it'll be like uh, when you guys were talking to Gina. <laughs> right. <laughs> hmm, take yeah, that. Actually, not all that different from my usual performance, but uh, this time it's less intentional. True. I was actually more talkative than usual. I tried to break in with the uh, the renal function question, but I figured it would have added it like towards the end. It would have added more. I, I did f- I did feel like I got a, like most of the questions that tripped me up on the inpatient side answered. Like mm-hmm. you know the the zero CAC score and and the uh, the 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 kind of non obstructive CAD. Like what do you mm-hmm. the plaque stuff? So well, and for me, this is like those are just not questions that are not asked about patients. Like we don't do CAC scoring. So what mm-hmm. to do with the CAC scoring and the setting of CT? Like, it's just none of that is... So all this was actually really right. helpful to me. But yeah. but you do order myocardial perfusion scans, right? Yes. I assume. Right. right. And just looking at the cost, the myocardial perfusion scan can be up to $3,000 versus a CCTA is 500 Right. Yeah. It's, I, it's something I'm actually... Especially, I think he made the great point that I think that he made is like, if you've already tried sort of the non-invasive stuff and you're just not quite satisfied with the answer, like this is a next go-between before you start trying to force catheterization so I, I may use it sort of in that regard so it's yeah this is this is good stuff and it, it is available it is available in the institution that i was working for uh but of course it's it's like available till five o'clock so a lot of patients <clears throat> a lot of the times you want to get it like you can't and it, it, it is it, it does take like a little bit to set up so it's still not even even at institutions that have it you sort of have to like learn who performs it and how you get how you get yourself or get your patient in for this study. Right. Did you guys have any other things? Like, I, I don't think we need to do a long, uh, much of a no. recap other than what we've just said there. No. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing mm-hmm. you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You well, find- yummy. <laughs> You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly video newsletter summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge, so please give us your feedback. You can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And you can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Paul Williams. And good night. Well, hi, Paul. (laughs) 